Hello and welcome to Labor Pains Podcast. I am your host, Teresa Reiniger. I am so glad that you are here. If you are here for the very first time, welcome. I am so glad that you have found me. Um, And if you have been here before with me, welcome back to our community. This is a place where I strive to help women and men that are experiencing struggles with infertility, loss of a child during pregnancy or infancy, and we also, I want to help you with the heavy grief that are associated with those. I create space here for stories to be shared and connections to happen. Your happiness is very important to me, and it is also important to me that these episodes are valuable to you. I would love for you to do me a couple things. I would love for you to first connect with me on social media, both on Instagram and Facebook. I am at Living After Grief and also at Women Connect and Support. We share different information and resources on both of those platforms, so connect on both. Again, Living After Grief, and the other one is Women Connect and Support, both Instagram and Facebook. And then next, I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions on the podcast. You can do one of two things, um, different things to get in contact with me. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook, We'll definitely see it there. Or you can go to my website at livingaftergrief.com and click on the link to schedule a time to talk. I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear feedback and suggestions that you may have for the podcast. And I would love to allow you to share your story. And if you have had a loss, I would love to hear about your baby. Hey, I would like to share with you really quick before we get into the episode for today that as a grief coach, I work with clients that are experiencing struggles with infertility, early or late miscarriages, stillbirths, or infant loss. After such profound loss, a woman desires to feel whole again for her family, friends, and most of all, for herself. To experience grief in a healthy way, One has to learn how to navigate through it. It takes time to learn how to live in the new normal. A coach like myself can help you in ways loved ones may not be able to. I am here to walk alongside you to find the hope, laughter, and joy in your life again without the blame and the guilt. I have a better understanding of grief and the necessary mixture of human emotions that come with it and push through to engage in life again so you can so I can help you navigate through those triggers that are keeping you locked inside physically and emotionally life can and will be good again so if you would like to set up a time with me i would love to talk to you just click the link on my website at www.livingaftergrief.com to schedule a time to talk over the phone. And I look forward to hearing from you soon. Hello, Erica. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I am so glad that we've connected and have been connected and that we're going to be able to spread some awareness today, share your story, um, and then what you're doing now as a result of, of um, your journey. So yeah. first off, I'd like to ask you, who is Erica? Tell yeah. a little bit about yourself. <laughs> so I am a few things. I am a licensed clinical psychologist working in Los Angeles, and I actually work virtually throughout California, Colorado, and Rhode Island. I also am an animal mother to a dog and two cats. And I lost my baby Shayla 
about six, seven months ago, mm. um, which has been very difficult. And I always think it's really interesting as a clinical psychologist going through my own personal struggles. It's a really great way for me to use my professional experience and personal experience as well to really come together. Um, but I'm really grateful to be on today and to be sharing some of my both professional and personal history. Mm, yeah, yeah. We're going to definitely have the listeners um, hear about all of that. And so, yeah, it's kind of interesting that I'm sure um, using your profession to to help you through what you what you went through with Shayla. So tell us. Um, of course, the podcast is about um, struggles with infertility and loss, which you just indicated that you had. So if you can just kind of walk us through the story of, sure. of Shayla, and 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 if you've had other losses, um, you know, just share all of that. That would be great. Yeah. So I, my husband and I got married in July of 2019. And I think it was, it was right when the pandemic hit and we're like, let's start trying for a baby. So we got pregnant right away, actually, like that first time we tried, but that ended, yeah, that ended in a chemical pregnancy, like a few days later. So I was just confused at that point. I didn't really, I wasn't really like, oh, I, I need to have a baby right now. Like, I was just like, let's try. And so when that happened, it left me feeling a little bit confused, but I wasn't too worried about it. Mm-hmm. And we took a few months break and tried again. And I was pregnant. And this time I was pregnant for like a week and a half. And although I was spotting the entire time, throughout and the day before my scan I miscarried and this one was more difficult because I had told my parents that I was pregnant and I even got it on video and so that just Mm. emotionally hit me a lot harder and was more of a struggle when I ended up miscarrying and just made me feel so anxious about trying to conceive again Mm. so that was the beginning, uh, we we tried again for a couple of more months, and I got pregnant with Shayla, and I knew I was pregnant because I started spotting. So much like my previous two pregnancies, started spotting right away, and that's how I knew I was pregnant because I, I was like, I'm not going to test early, but then when I started spotting that cycle, I was like, mm, I think I know what this means. So I was very anxious and got an early scan. Everything looked good. And then I'm a therapist. So in the middle of one of my therapy sessions, I felt this huge gush of blood come out of my body. Mm. And I told everyone I miscarried. I was convinced, you know, I think when you look online of number one thing to go wrong in a pregnancy, it's like bleeding. So I just, didn't even question it. I was like, I just had a miscarriage. My husband was like, do you want some wine? I said, no, I, I'm, you know, crying through tears. Like, I don't really want a glass of wine. But I had already had an appointment at my OB the next day. So when I went, I told them I had a miscarriage. And they looked at the scan and my baby was there and her heart was beating. And mm-hmm. I was so confused. So I was yeah. like, no, 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 no. I was fighting with the ultrasound tech. <laughs> I'm like, I miscarried, I know. She's like, I, you did not. And so I was told that I had a subchorionic hematoma, which isn't the most rare thing to occur in a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But I can understand, you know, the anxiety of, of bleeding during pregnancy feels really abnormal. And mm-hmm. two days later, the same thing happened. And I rushed to my doctor's office, saw my heart beat, my baby's heartbeat beating strongly. And I was told that everything could be fine. I might miscarry. I might not. And it was just a really hard place to live in this uncertainty. So at that point, I was, I was already feeling so afraid and I just had a bad feeling from the beginning, Mm -hmm. actually. So how far along were you at this point? I was 
I was seven, eight weeks at this okay. point when I okay. had these like bleeding incidents. Okay. And um, I remember I was wearing like adult diapers every day because I oh. didn't know yeah. what this was going to happen again. Right. And I was driving cross country with my husband who was doing an avalanche ski course who wasn't mm. going to have service for three days. So I was so worried. I was staying at my friend's house wearing adult diapers, uh, hoping that everything would be okay. And I got through that trip, but I was getting scans every week. I got nine scans in my first trimester, actually. Wow. Because of the bleeding? Yeah, and my anxiety. anxiety? Okay, okay. I was told that I, I could get more scans because it would make sense that I'd be anxious. And it, I think it was mostly for my anxiety, but I was encouraged to get scans as well. My oh, doctor okay. told me, you can come in whenever you want. You can come in multiple times a week. So when I was traveling across the country, and this was during the pandemic, I would, wherever I had was driving to, I would stop to get a scan. So I got a scan in Colorado, got a scan near ski mountains in California, I just needed that reassurance that everything was okay. Well, so did you just go to the emergency room for this? Scan? I went. Where no, did I you go. I, I'm like, went, I know. I'm oh, very wait. savvy. Apparently, <laughs> you must. I, <laughs> I went wait, to the OB, OB offices, and people just saw me. I mean, I don't really know how. I think I had my doctor submit a referral for a scan, and somehow I just figured it out. I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> But I was I was convinced. I'm like, I'm finding a way to get scammed. Wow. So, you are very savvy. Yeah. Because I have never, <laughs> quite honestly, heard someone that gets scanned at multiple different states yeah. and offices. And so good to know. Yes. You and know, not you, in the emergency room. If you want something, yeah. you want something there's a way. It out, right? There's okay. definitely a way to get it. So okay. after... That whole, you know, after I came back to L.A., I got my uh, NT scan, and I was told everything looked perfect. My hematoma actually went away. So I was starting to finally feel a little bit better. Mm. I, I had a little bit of relief, and I really wanted to get more scans, but everyone told me I was just an anxious mess, and I mm. shouldn't. So I listened to them. So like, you know what? You're right. I think I'm too anxious. And I'm going to try to not get a scan. So for between 12 and 19 weeks, I didn't get a scan. And that was probably my one of my bigger regrets was actually not getting a scan. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, but I found other ways to find reassurance. So I weighed myself every day. I asked my husband if I was growing. I would just find other ways to feel like, yep, I'm pregnant, things are growing. And mm-hmm. at my 19-week scan in the waiting room, someone was like, oh, you don't look 19 weeks. You look really small. And I mm. felt really sad in that moment. And I was like, no, 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 look, look how big I am. And I was like trying to show her how big I was. But I was so naive. And my husband was not allowed in the room because of mm-hmm. COVID. Oh, and Yeah. yeah. And so I got my anatomy scan, and it was actually the first – they got a new machine. It was the first time they were using the machine. Mm. So they actually had someone in there who was helping her use the new machine, showing her the new features. Okay, some training. And, <laughs> yes, like it was, it was like training for the new machine, but it was a perinatologist who did the anatomy scan. Okay. And she had actually done the scan – when I fought with her, when she told me my baby still had a heartbeat, she was the one who did my anatomy scan. Okay. And I thought everything was going well. I mean, they were like, look how cute your baby is. And like, all of the structures look so perfect. And then at the end, she was like, your baby's measuring really small. Like, are you sure you know your dates are right? And I was like, yes, I've gotten nine scans at this point I'm I'm very sure about my dating and yeah. I was really confused but I was like this is normal people find things all the time I was saying a little off but not 
totally shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not this is not necessarily the norm. If for if you talk to other women who have been in a similar position as me, I think most people find abnormalities like way more clearly than mine. Okay. It's either like really obvious at the 12 week scan or the anatomy scan, but mine was kind of like, hmm, everything like looks okay. So I was in this midpoint of not really knowing what was going on, but I never bought anything for my baby because I said, I want to wait until the anatomy scan. I was so nervous. I want to wait the day before my anatomy scan. My husband got mad at me of like, why can't you just be excited and buy something? Mm. And I broke down in tears. I'm like, I was like, I just don't have a good feeling. So after the news of she's measuring really small, I was still like, maybe I'll just wait another week. But then I got the report and spoke to my doctor, and he said there was like decreased or more resistance in the umbilical cord activity. Mm. And so I didn't know what that was. So I yeah, started asking. So explain that. You know, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get an explanation, but I was told, you're going to go back to the hospital um, to do a more in-depth, like, a you know, level two ultrasound. I'm sure everything will be fine. Got a lot of reassurance. Everything's good. You're just going to go there, and then you're going to come back, and everything will be okay. So I got a lot of reassurance, but I was still feeling really odd, and a week later, I went to that scan, and they just changed the policy that day that I could bring my husband. Ooh. So, so grateful to have him yeah. with me. Yeah. Um, and they were doing all the measurements. And by this time, I kind of knew a little bit of what they were doing when they were doing the measurements. And I saw her brain was not was measuring uh, at this point two weeks behind. And everything, mm. she was small all over. I could see that. And her brain itself was measuring pretty far behind. And then they show you at the end, there's like a screen that shows you per- where your baby's measurements fall. And her brain was all the way off the chart. Mm. And everything else was between, was somewhat underneath the middle, but her brain was completely off. And I, as a psychologist, kind of just knew mm, this doesn't look so good. And they had told me I had a marginal cord insertion. Uh, usually there's something called a brain sparing effect where they, the brain ends up being the biggest and all of the nutrients goes there first because that's the most important. Mm-hmm. So with IUGR, usually the body's small and the brain is bigger. But in my case, it wasn't that way. So mm-hmm. we were just a little confused about like I have a marginal cord insertion bright spots on the heart which is you know kind of like a common finding but then her brain was really really behind so after that my doctor's like oh no you need to go to a different specialist and at that specialist um, her brain was measuring in the first percentile and he used many different machines and I got an amnio that day and later that week my doctor called me at 8.01 a.m. on a Friday, remember it perfectly, and was like, you're not going to have a healthy baby. And mm. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah. you have, you have options. I think I blacked out because he told me I had options, but I, I only remember one. And he's like, you, you need to terminate this pregnancy mm. because you're not going to have a healthy baby. And I was like, oh, my God, what? Like, I would have, would have, like, what, what do you mean? I was really confused. And he's like, your baby has microcephaly. And I don't really care what the amnio says because we don't know much about genetics, but the brain is the most important organ and and your baby will not be okay. And so I, after that call, I was really thrown off. I like hung up, started crying, took a day off from work. And I was like, I just feel like this is really premature. I... I was really confused why he said that. So at that point, I brought my medical team up to like 14 people. Got wow. a fetal echocardiogram. I went to different, I consulted with different doctors. I talked to pediatricians. Just, I looked at my birth chart notes uh, to get all of the information I could. Um, 
and my maternal fetal medicine doctor in LA is one of the top doctors in LA. He actually did my mom's amnio when I was in her womb. Oh my goodness. It's been around forever, which is so wild. And he has done a lot of research on microcephaly. And it was like, it's like the hardest, one of the hardest things to diagnose because some people have small heads, but for microcephaly, you know, if you remember like the Zika thing, that's, it caused microcephaly and these um, babies' brains just don't like develop properly in your utero. Um, And, and some of it's kind of a spectrum diagnosis. So if you have mild microcephaly, you might just have some learning issues or um, some trouble walking, feeding, hearing, seeing, and you need PT. But on the severe end, um, those kids may never walk or talk in their life or may never be able to feed themselves. And so I joined the support group for babies with this diagnosis to see Mm -hmm you know, what these, what these babies looked like. Um, and, and a lot of them were struggling, had, some of them had 800 seizures a day. Ooh. I saw, yeah, 800. Some Ooh. of them had not as wow. many as that, but I did see that. I saw babies who had died. Um, and so I went back to my doctor in LA. I went back to the hospital, back to my doctor and then by that point, um, her brain really hadn't grown at all since like 18 weeks. And at this point, she was five standard deviations below the mean, mm-hmm. um, which is quite quite far off. You know, they're like one standard deviation is not so normal, but five is, is like severe. And at that point, I just, after talk, it was the hardest thing in my life to really like Mm -hmm. make that decision but at that point I had heard from so many doctors that that this was the choice to make and so I ended my pregnancy because Mm. I couldn't I couldn't live with the fact that she might have suffered and might have had severe epilepsy um but it it was one of the hardest things that is so traumatic Mm -hmm. uh to have her living inside of me to make this decision when she was so wanted. And it's just, it's so sad to think about being in this position. And sometimes it, sometimes um, doctors don't have an opinion. They're like, this is up to you. But mm-hmm. I have been told multiple times, like, this is the only decision to make. And so made it a, a little easier and I know it's very controversial about this decision. I know there's a lot sure. of shame and different opinions, um, but this was what was right for me. And I, I, ha- I used all the data I had at the time to make this decision for my daughter and for my family. Yeah. Well, and just um, obviously, like we said at the very beginning, a very savvy person. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you really touched every base, like everything. I mean, yeah. a team of, what did you say, 12, 14? 14, yeah. Medical. I mean, you definitely, it sounds like, did way more research than, you know, other people would have done. Yeah. Um, but you I had to. Yeah. I went to the hospital where I was born and got my birth record. You know, I don't know how I was able to do that, but I I had to. Wow. Wow. And why did you do that? I wanted to see if any, when they were doing my testing, so they measure your head at birth. So, And I wanted to see, because there's like brain circumference and head circumference, and basically um, if you're the bigger head is, like the bigger your brain is as well. And so I wanted to see, did I just have like a really small head? Mm -hmm. Is that what was going on? So I got my birth charts. I got my sister's birth charts just to see what the head circumference looked like at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was really trying to find something that showed, yes, we had smaller heads and like maybe this is a fluke, but we didn't. Um, Mm. And 
and again, it was really severe. It wasn't just small. It wasn't in the first percentile. It was completely off the chart. And it, she was not following a growth chart of her own. She was falling off the chart. Um, and, and it can be diagnosed in utero. And this was early to be diagnosed. So all of those factors was like it's, it's looking on the more severe end because of the timing, because of how slow, how no growth has happened over all of these weeks. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just shown to me that this would probably be more, yeah, severe. Yeah. So like you said, there is there is controversy. But, yeah. you know, I, I think everyone needs to really make their own decision, you know. Um, and you, like I said before, went way above, you know, researching and grabbing a, a huge amount of medical um, people to help you. you. It sounds like you tried everything possible to yeah. almost prove them wrong. Yeah. That, that yeah. she was, that she was okay. Yeah. You know, you, you went back and got your own um, records. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, you did everything, everything um, possible. Yeah. And I think the it. other part, too, is because I'm in support groups with other women who have been in and other people who have been in my position. And it's like at the end of the day, we all grieve. We all mm. lost our baby. We all wanted our babies. And there's an extra layer of guilt and shame that is added onto it. Yeah. And and I know that I like this decision was in alignment with my values, and I feel like the guilt that I was feeling isn't really justified because I knew that I was making the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw that I wasn't really welcomed in baby loss support spaces as much. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is really true for a lot of us. It's like we're seen as the people who had a decision, and so our loss isn't like real loss, our grief isn't real grief. And that was an extra layer of trauma added on when I saw that like, oh, I don't belong here. Like I don't belong in this baby loss support space. And that was really, really challenging. And so they, there are spaces called, you know, for ending a wanted pregnancy. And all of us just like we just want our baby like we just want a healthy living baby and we want that baby not not a replacement baby um right and so a lot of our grief it looks really similar but i think if you're not in that our position it's really hard to see and understand what that could be like yeah yeah i i can't you know, even myself with, with working a lot with people that have women that have gone through loss and, and, and working now as a grief coach, I can't even, you know, there's no way that I could totally understand yeah, know, what you're sure. going through. Um, so you're right in that. So how are you? I mean, that's got to be the biggest thing now is finding that support. So you have found support. Yes. And then just dealing, you know, yeah. with all that trauma and grief. What are you doing for yourself? Well, I'm in therapy. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm I'm a therapist. I'm a huge proponent of therapy. Uh-huh. Um, and I took I took time off from work. I actually did what you're not supposed to do. I think they say when you're grieving, don't make big decisions. Mm, but I, I quit do. I quit my job. <laughs> At UCLA, I quit my job at a group practice, and I opened my own practice Mm. four weeks after losing my baby. And that was more of me saying, like, I I can't work up to other people's expectations. I really need the flexibility to do it my way, to do it on my time when I feel ready. So I slowly, very slowly built up my practice and that was really helpful I also fled to Hawaii Mm. I think grieving in Hawaii is so much better than being in my house with all the triggers I think everyone should be prescribed to travel and given money to travel when they're grieving it makes it a lot it's a way better healing process Mm -hmm. I like that 
Yes. So, a lot. Yes. And that, that was, it's like I might as well be crying in Hawaii than in my bed, in my place where I once thought I would see my daughter take her first steps. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been getting a lot of my own help. I've been in support groups. But as a therapist, I saw there's a huge gap, a service gap for women who lose their baby and for women who terminate their pregnancy for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. And there was literally nothing out there that I could find. So I have been trying really hard to generate and provide these resources for other working people and their partners so that they have a place to go and feel less alone when they're in the process or in their grief process. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it was um, much needed and you're you're fulfilling fulfilling that need. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad to hear that as a therapist, you are getting therapy because we do know that a lot of times if we're um, struggling with something um, that we do ourselves, mm-hmm. um, we have a tendency to not always, um, and not in your case, obviously, yeah. but listen to our own advice that we're giving right. other people. Like we just, that doesn't apply to me. That only applies to my clients or, or sure. my customers or whatever. So I'm glad to hear that that you're, you are um, going to see someone and not trying to necessarily fix yourself yeah. per se. And I was in uh, therapy beforehand, so that was okay. really helpful that I already had that. Um, but there aren't very many therapists who specialize in pregnancy loss or pregnancy loss specifically for people who yeah. end their wanted pregnancies because we know politically and religiously and personal views-wise, that's not – you can't just go to any therapist and know that your therapist is a safe space. Sure. So I already had a therapist, and I already knew – that she was a safe person. Uh, I had talked to her about it. Like, I need my therapist to be pro-choice because that's mm-hmm. not going to be a good dynamic. But I, I got my own support. And then I created a directory for therapists who mm-hmm. are affirmative in termination. Okay. So, yeah. Well, good. And I have, um, you know, on the other end of that, know people that um, – they've carried a pregnancy, you know, as long as, as the pregnancy, the child lived. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing easy about either one of those. Yeah. Yep. You know, yep. Um, and it really is what's right for you. Um, yeah. Because in the end, it, it, it's not easy e- either way. No, it's not. And it's kind of like you're, it's like, it's you going to be a few options that are yeah. awful options. Yeah. Either way, you end up grieving something. You end up losing something. And I think people just make the best decisions they can in that moment. Like everyone has the best intentions. But there are mm-hmm. people in my, in my support group space who have carried a pregnancy to term, have lost a baby in the NICU, and have terminated a pregnancy for the same genetic disorder mm, so yeah. I have we have like seen that there are women who who try multiple ways because they know that their baby dying in the NICU like they can't do that again and so they terminate and I just think we all do what we can in that moment but finding out your baby's going to die or will not live like that quality of life is devastating mm-hmm. yeah. no matter what for sure for sure so is this something that is um, genetic, just kind of yeah, a fluke good kind of thing, or yeah. were the other miscarriages kind of related to, yeah. to this? Oh, I'm sure you, so many because who you, who you are, you've researched a lot. Yeah. Because so, that seems like yeah. that's what you do, which is great. Yeah. Got, got a lot of information. So when I, so between... Deciding I was getting an amnio and getting the amnio was two days. So I met with a genetic counselor the day in between, and I had no idea about the process. So I definitely was naive going into this. And I remember reading something about whole exome sequencing, 
where they sequence your entire DNA with you, your partners, and the baby. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking of, like, can we do that? Can we just sequence all of our DNA? Like, I know it's out of pocket, but I, I want to do it all. And I remember being told it didn't make sense, given some reason, but they were going to pull out on the microcephaly genes, and they were going to test me on that, and I was going to do a microarray and something else. And it ended up taking, because microcephaly is really rare and only two labs in the U.S. test for it, Mm -hmm. it ended up taking five weeks to get those results back. And I had terminated on the ultrasound alone because my doctor said that we know very little about genetics. And so he said, I don't care what the amnio says. Like, we see what we're seeing here, and that's more important. So I ended my pregnancy without getting any genetic data back and it all came back clear, which I on I kind of had a feeling it would come back clear, um, but I never got the whole exome sequencing and that is my second biggest regret. Actually, mm-hmm. that's my first. My second is not getting the scans, which I'll tell you why. This was my first biggest regret, regret was not advocating and asserting myself enough to get it because in the support group for microcephaly, most people find out through whole exome sequencing where they have very rare genetic disorders mm-hmm. that only 30 people in the world have been diagnosed with, um, but others have never found a genetic cause. And so I, I did not, my baby did not get microcephaly due to CMV, which can happen, or Zika. So it didn't happen for any infections and no genetic connections were found, which Mm. is very scary for like a subsequent pregnancy of not Mm -hmm. knowing and just having to wait to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There are, there are lots of times, I mean, and I'm just speak for myself. Yeah. um, I have a daughter that was born with, uh, I guess, mal- uh, malformation or birth defect, and I have a grandson, the same, mm-hmm. and genetic testing and everything was, was done, you know, that they yeah. thought it was genetic, and nothing has ever really wow. been found. So it's like there are those times that things just happen. I yeah. mean, yeah. It, it just does. And, um, and you can't explain it. Unexplained, totally unexplainable. Yeah. And that's what this scan too is because um, I'll never know the reason that my second regret was not getting the scans from me 12 to 19 is because I'll never know when it started to show. Mm. And so being in a pregnancy for 20 weeks with just hoping things are going well is so, so extremely terrifying. And so, um, and again, like maybe it wouldn't have shown at all. But mm-hmm. I'm an information gatherer, so to just have that uncertainty of not knowing when mm-hmm. something showed up or why um, is is difficult. But again, at, at the end of the day, it's like I just I miss I miss my baby a lot, and I try to make the best decision I could, and I'll never know. I just am living with uh, that uncertainty yeah. of of what she could have been like, and just accepting that I did what I did and. I did it to like protect her. Sure. Sure. And and moms always make the best decision that they can for yeah. sure to protect our children. Right. You know, there's yeah. no doubt there that um you did the decision to protect her. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's hard decisions. Always yes. hard decisions for moms, and that one sounds like it was extremely, extremely hard um, for you. Um, was your husband a part of that? How 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 is he? Yes. How is he? He he was there with me through all of my scans past that point, mm-hmm. and we actually together went to my therapist and had a joint session, mm-hmm. and he was very he was very involved, and he was I think even earlier on was the one who was like considering termination before me. I think I was kind of the last one to 
have come on board with that because it was like I'm carrying this baby in my body. Yeah. I'm the one signing off on the papers. I'm the like I just felt this huge wave of responsibility, even though it was both of our child. So he thankfully like he is the biggest support person and he gets it the most. I don't think anyone gets it as much as I do because again it's within my own body. Right. But he he gets it the the most out of anyone else and has been so supportive and was really um involved. I mean I did more of the research on it. Mm-hmm. He was very involved with every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that I'm glad that you, you that we talked about that because that's important. I mean, whenever there's a loss, you know, not always like um, in your instance, but just a loss that sometimes the the blame, the the you know, the shame because we as women are carrying that child. Yeah. You know, yeah. that people feel like we sh- are in total control and we feel like we should be yeah. in control and, and we're not. And so that partner sometimes, um, sometimes the marriage really, is, you know, it doesn't survive yeah. it. It's a very difficult. It is. It is. It is very difficult. And like, I think we have become stronger through it, but we have yeah. also grieved very differently, which um, I know is so common and pervasive throughout relationships and it can be a very gendered approach but it is true a lot of the time where he he just doesn't get it to the same way that I do and I feel like I'm grieving harder and longer and get triggered more easily than than he does um but he is able to support me through that so I guess that is is one plus but I know a lot of couples who who find it like extremely difficult and whose relationships don't last because it's an right. earth shattering experience. Yeah. Well, and I would think, and this is just what popped in my head and sometimes crazy things pop in my head, but <laughs> I'm just like that spouse is, is almost could be like now a trigger, Yeah. you know, to just see yeah. them or be with them or whatever. And um, so that's hard, yeah. you know, to be, uh, constant, daily, um, those daily triggers. Exactly. Um, and stuff. So um, I'm glad to hear that he's supportive and, and you guys have really come together um, mm-hmm. as a union and stronger. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's yeah, just so important. So um, do you want to share more about what you're doing now before we kind of conclude because what you're doing sounds just really amazing and helpful and and you know with our times now I'm in the St. Louis area but you indicated you're in the LA area Mm -hmm. even people in my area now with what we've been through with um, COVID and all of that people very much are doing things virtually so tell us tell us a little bit about what you're doing so I, again, so after I, I had the best medical care ever in Los Angeles, had no mental health follow-up and mm-hmm. was given mm-hmm. no resources for grief. Mm-hmm. And that, my medical leave turned into a research leave on finding resources. Mm-hmm. And I am someone who has the capabilities of doing this because this is my job and it was hard. So I thought, wow, okay, well, if someone is going through a grieving process and doesn't know how to search this, then they are never going to find appropriate resources. So I created a a website and an Instagram, which is TSMR Psychologist, which stands for Termination for Medical Reasons. And I created a therapist directory that's supposed to be international. Most of it is within the U.S., but it is a therapist directory. So you can go on if you have ever had a termination for medical reasons, or even if if someone has had like an earlier termination or abortion for for a not wanted pregnancy, and then they go through a miscarriage and they feel waves of like guilt or shame that this happened for a reason, which happens a lot. Um, You can go to these therapists because you know that these therapists are, 
pro-choice and their safe space. So it really takes out the guessing work. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, so that's on my website, that directory, which is growing all the time. And then I'm also going to be creating training for therapists on therapists who want to work with women and people and birthing partners who experience and go through this termination um, but don't really know where to start. There are no trainings specifically for it. So I'm going to create a training. And then I also have my Instagram where there's just a lot of people who have undergone a termination and who are just trying to find community support. Okay. Wow, you have done a lot um, yeah. in, a short, in a short period of time. Um, but it's obvious, you know, and I think with a lot of people, it, it's really in their timing when they've mm-hmm. had a loss that they really want to do something to um, remember their child and honor their child, yeah. that it was, there was a, um, just to find a way to kind of um, remember really that child. And so, and sometimes it takes, a short period of time, like in your case, and sometimes yeah. it takes 9, 10, 12 years before yeah. they feel um, a way to do that. Um, and sometimes it's just private. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's to help others, very public. And so yeah. um, I think what you're doing um, is going to be so helpful to so many, so many. Thank you. So I was curious, and this kind of backtracking, were you able to um, get pictures and stuff with your daughter? So I, I was, I have. Or did you choose? Okay. And handprints, but I ended up getting. I did the surgical termination, which is a D and E, which was okay. the last possible day to do it. But I, and it was so so hard. Um, mm. But I thought it would be more traumatic going through labor on a labor unit where healthy babies were there. Uh-huh. So I, if I could have given labor in like my own private, like grieving room, I would have done that. Okay. But I felt like it was too traumatic to be on a okay. maternity ward. So sure. Sure. I never will know if that was the right decision either. But yeah. I, I do have footprints and handprints and more ultrasounds than I can count. Good. Good. So you have lots of things to, yeah. to remember her by. Yeah, well, that's good. And I, that just popped in my head, I think, because of my last um, recording was a photographer that mm. um, takes yeah. those pictures. Yeah, so which is that's, such, such a wonderful service to offer. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, unless you have something else, we will grab um, um, all of those links of everywhere that you indicated people okay. can connect with you. And we'll put those in the show notes for the listeners so that they have those. But as we conclude, um, if there's anything else you'd like to share, or if um, always at the end of the the episode, I'd like for you to share any words of encouragement or advice um, to the listeners. But if there's something I missed, please share that first. (laughs) No, I don't don't think there's anything we missed. I think my advice is kind of just, going off a little bit of what you said, but there's really no wrong or right way to grieve. And it's, you know, if you're a loud griever, silent griever, um, if you have been in a position similar to mine and you want to share or not share, there's, there's no right or wrong way. But I think the most important thing is getting support in safe spaces. And mm-hmm. so I will have a few of those Facebook support group and website pages so that if you are looking for support, you will have a community that there's absolutely no judgment. And so that's my hope is that all of you who are listening, any type of pregnancy loss and baby loss is that you find community and you feel like you're not alone. Um, and I think we will always grieve and it will just be about finding different ways to relate to our grief. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Total, total agreement. Find that support. That is most important. Find yeah. wherever that support is. And you can find it in many, many places, but find the right support for yourself. Exactly. Um, and don't um, 
don't allow really someone to tell you <laughs> uh-huh. how to breathe and where you need to be because yeah. that is a very personal um, and individual um, basis. Exactly. So again, thank you so much, Erica, for coming on to share today. I really appreciate that. And um, we'll, we'll uh, conclude with that unless you have something else. So Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so I, much. I really, uh, really appreciate it. You are so welcome. This episode, like all episodes, was very emotional. Erica had some really, a really tough decision to make. And I do believe, like she said, after lots and lots of research, 14 people as part of her medical team and ultrasounds and testing and researching to be told that your baby is not healthy, that your baby is, is not growing, your baby's brain is not growing is very hard to hear. And I thank you, Erica, for coming on and sharing your story from your heart to bring awareness of these situations that mothers have to endure, make decisions about a baby that they so much want and love. Thank you, Erica, for sharing. I know it is difficult for you, but I so appreciate you taking the time and sharing. And listeners, I hope that this has been a valuable episode for you to bring awareness of what women like Erica have to decide and that we all respect her decision as well as all other women that are put in this situation. I love you and thank you for coming on and listening to another episode. I hope it was of value to you. And I will be with you again next week. If you need some support, you know in the show notes that Erica's information is there and my information is there. Reach out. We would love to support you.